Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. Today, we have a guest interview, which I am really excited for. We are interviewing one of my very good friends, um, Francesca Laporati, and she is a registered nutritional therapist who specializes in perimenopause. And the reason why I wanted to interview Francesca today is because she's amazing. And in addition to that, because she um, really is my go-to person when it comes to all things um, hormonal health, female hormones, and perimenopause and menopause specifically. Often when I'm working on client cases, if I do have a client who's also perimenopausal and I have a few questions, she's the first person I'll shoot messages to. And we are constantly exchanging WhatsApp voice notes, um, comparing notes and talking about different tests and supplements and um this episode today is just going to be a little insight into some of the conversations we're constantly having all the time. Um, but I think the challenge with perimenopause is that when somebody is in a sort of chronic fatigue or burnout situation, if they're also going through hormonal changes like perimenopause, it adds a whole other layer of complexity to the casework. And so there's so much complexity in perimenopause. There's so much complexity in chronic fatigue, ME, burnout, um, and all of these types of conditions. And so it's, it's kind of really difficult to talk about them. And the purpose of today is really to kind of pull things apart a little bit more. So Francesca's going to be talking a lot about perimenopause generally, and then also then talking about it um, how it can then relate and influence someone's chronic fatigue and burnout recovery journey. But before we go into all the ins and outs of perimenopause, um, Francesca, first of all, welcome. And um, I think it would be really lovely just to start with um, sharing a little bit of your story and how you arrived at doing the work that you're so passionate about doing now. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, yeah, so I've been a nutritional therapist since 2013 and I've been running my own business doing it full time since 2015. But how I kind of moved into the perimenopause space was really because I was perimenopausal and hadn't really known or appreciated that I was. Um, and once I did understand it and start to look into it, I just thought, right, this is I'm going to be helping myself and I you know this is what I want to specialize in and I just literally immersed myself in all things perimenopause training all the continued professional development that we do for me my 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 focus was perimenopause and that continues to be um so when I was around 38 I'd been running my business full, full time on my own for three years as you know it is a lonely it's a lonely process you know just running a business by yourself so I'd been doing it for three years by the time I got to 38 and I literally just hit burnout um was completely I started to kind of wake up in the morning and feel like I was about to faint so it's kind of those sorts of symptoms of low blood pressure and everything was just really really difficult everything all the bits of work that I was doing and whether it was presenting in corporate environments or seeing clients it all just became really really difficult it took so much physical and mental energy brain energy was so low so it all just became really difficult and I was having debilitating headaches about three times a week 
at that time. Um, and yeah, I just sort of, you know, I knew I've hit burnout here. There's something wrong. Um, and I had the three years leading up to that point, I had zero boundaries with regards to, you know, how much time I, that I put into my business. And it was literally probably 20, you know, 18 hours a day. And then the rest of the time I was just asleep and then doing it all again the next day. And I kind of just burnt myself out over those three years. And then I think, so then I kind of just battled with it, tried to, you know, tried a few different things, a few different approaches, took some time off, um, made sure I took weekends off, all of that kind of thing. But for the, for about two years, um, and it, it got slightly better, then it would get worse and it would get slightly better, but I just kept sort of pushing through. And then as I turned 40, which is just before, it was the December, just before the first lockdown that we had in the March, 2020, um, actually that first lockdown for me was an opportunity to just hit the pause button and actually focus on healing because it was literally yeah I mean you know for a lot of people it wasn't a pause button for me it was because so much of my work was just literally stripped away that day the day the week that we all went into lockdown so I had no choice I couldn't work anyway um And it was just a real opportunity. You know, we couldn't do anything. For me, it was an opportunity to just, I spent so much time in nature. I was out for a walk first thing in the morning, again, in the afternoon. Obviously, we had really great weather as well for the first six months. Um, And I just started doing lots of kind of journaling and um, kind of just lots of resting, but also active resting, like the time in nature, um, meditation, breathing exercises, really simple, just gentle yoga flows and things like that. And it just, it became this kind of healing journey for me. And I was addressing even little things like, not little things, actually, it's quite a big thing, but I was addressing things like um, childhood issues from my childhood and and past and things like that. And just really processing lots and lots of emotions during that time. And it just became a, a healing time for me. But then I also started to notice changes in my body with my hormones. So really just noticing that, okay, this is when I really started to look into perimenopause and actually when it begins. And I realized that even at 38, you know, my body was already experiencing those hormonal changes on top of the burnout. So that added, as you mentioned earlier, that extra layer of complexity to the whole situation. So then the more I just sort of delved into perimenopause and really understanding what's going on it really just helped me to help you know support all of that and start to feel better as well as supporting the fact that I'd hit burnout and all of those things I needed to do for the essentially chronic fatigue I was experiencing yeah and it sounds like just to kind of summarize very briefly that the period up until the lockdown you were managing yourself but you weren't actually quote healing yourself you were just finding these little like coping mechanisms to get by as you say like improve your boundaries a bit or take the weekends off make sure you're not working too many hours like those kind of basic coping mechanisms which I mean I think they're actually a stepping stone to healing aren't they but um it was that lockdown that really created that big expansiveness where you started to really start to heal instead of just manage yourself day to day and and then what's interesting is that you on reflection saw okay yes there was this like burnout chronic fatigue situation that's happening but how much of that was perimenopause how much of that was other things that you've mentioned and um we actually just don't know do we and it's difficult to kind of 
pick it all apart and pull it all apart and then understand how all the different aspects are contributing to the the total picture of someone's health. And I kind of think that's our job actually as nutritional therapists is to start to pull out and tease apart everything to really work out what's going on. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And even things like, obviously we'll get into it now, but things like my sleep being so badly affected at the burnout stage and leading up to it and after Yes, there was a huge element of what I'd done to kind of burn myself out that had got me there and that nervous system dysregulation, which obviously isn't going to help my sleep. But yeah, I hadn't been aware of the fact that at that age, at 38 and then moving to my 40s, potentially that level of stress was impacting my body's ability to make progesterone, which we'll talk about. And that has a huge impact on your ability to sleep, to fall asleep and or to stay asleep, to have a deep sleep, all of this. So yeah, knowing things like that, okay, well, at least I can support that. And maybe that can help in some way with my sleep. Yeah. And so I kind of, I don't know if I should ask you this now at the end, but I'm just going to ask it now. It's like, so what is life like for what is life like for you now because you had this I, I remember when you were at your lowest point and I know we we saw each other about a month ago in person and I just said to you, you know there's been such a massive change and so I know you from your lowest point to where you are now and even though you are going through this perimenopause you are also doing things to support your body and we'll talk about what specifically you're doing as we move through the episode but what is life like now and what feels different and how are you just able to use your health um in positive ways now compared to where it used to be yeah so now I feel a thousand times better um I still have I guess I'm still very cautious with putting myself you know doing certain things too much putting myself in certain situations there's certain things I'll never go back to the way that they the way I was doing things before um my boundaries in my work obviously are completely different now it's so healthy I have my time off I have my space I know what I know how much I can put into one day without, you know, before it would become detrimental. Um, So all of that is now really good, but it it has, yeah, it has taken time to get there and understanding and making changes and kind of building on those. Um, But in terms of headaches, for example, I was having them three times a week, as I mentioned, then they sort of slowly went down to twice a month, then once a month. And now I'm having them, it's the same headache um, in, in terms of how it manifests. I'm probably having them every three to four months. Um, which when I do get it, I hate it. I had one last week for the first time in months. Um, but I'm always celebrating the fact that those used to be three week, uh, three times a week and they were so debilitating. I can't do anything on those days. So, you know, that just goes to show how far I've come. But that potentially, I because they do, if they do, when they do happen every sort of three to four months, for example, it will always be following a day where I did push myself too hard just got a little bit too excited thinking oh, I can do all of this I can have multiple clients in one day and go to the gym and have a walk in the morning and go to the shops and then the next day you know there it is so it's a little reminder every so often that you're not able to do that and you know you I don't want to be I don't want to be doing that every day anyway like we would have done before um so yeah and you know sleep and things like that was so so terrible at one stage and now it's it's as good as I think it can be for now I'm quite happy but yeah I think as we go through we'll talk about how those things have improved but it was really just understanding the impact of perimenopause on everything and then working with that 
I think changed things and the healing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that made the biggest difference for you and the, the little healing journey not little very big actually yeah. in fact <laughs> healing journey you've been on um so let's let's stop dangling the carrot let's go straight in um what is perimenopause so essentially it's the body's it's the transitional period between transitional phase between regular menstruating years and achieving or reaching peri- uh, menopause, which is the stopping of the cycles completely. Um, so it's a very, it's the body's very slow and gradual transition towards going that w- w- essentially we go 12 months without having a period. Um, average age is around 51, give or take, but we would go 12 months without having a period at all. And that that day would be menopause. And then that, from that day onward, we are in postmenopause. So menopause is just one day. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> menopause is just one day and then it's post-menopause and all the days before that, the many, many days and months and years before that is the perimenopause phase. So people do talk about uh, perimenopause, they but they call it all menopause. But it's really, really important to understand that although perimenopause is a transitional phase to menopause, it's not menopause. Menopause is when we haven't, we've gone those 12 months without having a period and then we are essentially post-menopause, but this perimenopausal phase is its own, it's a whole phase of its on, on its own, of its, you know, of its own. We're still fertile in, in perimenopause. We can still be having regular cycles as normal, but things are just starting to change. The cycles will be starting to change. The age uh, of when that starts to change will just differ from woman to woman. For some women, they're noticing changes to their cycle at 38. Other women don't notice any changes until 45. It's really just dependent on the woman. But um, what's happening with in perimenopause is from around age 35, our hormones are starting to change. Essentially, estrogen and progesterone their production the amount their uh, their balance is also just starting to change from around age 35 and if we go back a little bit to explain why that happens and how that happens our regular menstruating years so let's say from in your 20s and earlier 30s for most women that you know unless they have any kind of uh, hormonal conditions or anything like that for most women they have quite a robust um menstrual cycle let's say and what i mean by that is that the brain is governed by the brain talking down to the ovaries all month long every single day the brain is communicating down to the ovaries telling them how much which which hormone to make how much whether to ovulate all of that stuff and that is what governs the menstrual cycle throughout the whole month and it just repeats itself every single month and that communication line in your 20s and early 30s is usually quite robust so the brain talks down to the ovaries the ovaries hear hear loud and clear do what they're told um, and we have this nice period every single month and hopefully we ovulate as well but um, from age 35 that communication starts to change a little bit so the brain either isn't always talking down to the ovaries when it should and or it is, but the ovaries aren't hearing it all the time. Um, you know, and then they're hearing the next day, like, oh gosh, okay, I need to catch up. And what that results is is estrogen goes on a roller coaster. So from age 35 up to menopause, achieving menopause, which as we said could be around 51, estrogen can just go on this, it does go on this roller coaster ride. The extent of that roller coaster tends to get more and more pronounced the further we move into our 40s and towards achieving menopause, but it is starting around 35. And the other thing that's also happening is progesterone is starting to decline. And the two, the, those two issues, estrogen and roller coaster rides, though, 
one minute, it can be three times higher than it's ever been before in your life, your level of estrogen. The next minute, it can be really, really low. And it's just continuously like this roller coaster all month. And alongside progesterone levels declining, brings about lots of different symptoms and changes that are physical, mental, and emotional. And the reason for the progesterone decline is because if we we only make progesterone as a result of ovulation. So we have to have ovulated that month in order to have made any progesterone, you know, good enough levels of progesterone for a healthy hormonal balance. So the second half of our cycle is when we make lovely progesterone as a result of ovulating but during perimenopause when that communication line is broken down a little bit the ovaries don't always get that signal from the brain or the brain doesn't give the signal to ovulate so therefore we've got estrogen on a roller coaster but it's never met with progesterone which is what's supposed to happen in the second half of our cycle which is essentially what keeps hormones balanced and makes us you know helps us feel good because progesterone is really important so what's happening in perimenopause is we're not it's not as easy to achieve ovulation as it was in our 20s and earlier 30s so you know we we end up having more months from 35 upwards where we don't achieve ovulation and as a, and that does get more pronounced the further we move into our 40s so we might still be ovulating every month or most months until 43 44 who we just don't know you know we kind of mentioned that earlier we don't know every every woman is different um, but essentially, that's what's going on and creating those symptoms. And so you have a lovely analogy which you use like the about the um, progesterone is the calming best friend and estrogen yeah. is like the crazy party girl. So just to make it super simple, would you mind sharing that analogy? Yeah, so that's exactly what I say. So the, the estrogen, I heard this from an, a doctor in the past, I can't remember her name, but she likened estrogen to a diva. So it's the diva hormone. So if you just imagine... You've got this best friend. She's really great, but she is a bit of a diva. And when you go out, she is dancing on the tables. She's on the bar. She's wearing a really glittery outfit. And she is just taking, you know, she's getting all the attention. And she's great fun. But just like any anyone, any diva, we all need that calming best friend who's like, okay, get down now. You know, it's, it's all been great fun, but it's time to get down. Um, and to just sort of calm the show. And that's what progesterone does. That's what progesterone is for to estrogen. So estrogen can be this, um, yeah, this diva hormone in the body where it's doing all these great things for us. So for example, it gives us um, confidence. It makes us feel outgoing. It makes us feel sharp. We have great, like quick brain. We have lo- lots of great energy to the brain um we feel we usually feel quite attractive when we've got good levels of estrogen when they're in balance um so that's the diva side of it but then progesterone needs to come along in the second half of the cycle to just hold its hand and calm it down it's like the yin to the to estrogen's yang and if we don't get that calming best friend join us in the second half of the cycle then the diva just keeps running the show and that will bring about symptoms that are if, if anyone's heard of what people talk about estrogen dominance or it's when estrogen is basically dominating the show. It doesn't even necessarily mean you have high levels of estrogen um, outside of the normal range, but if they're not, if it's just not met with its calming best friend, we get things like breast pain, heavy periods, painful periods, mood swings, headaches. So that's, that's how I like to describe it. Yeah. I think that's such a beautiful analogy because everybody knows or maybe is (laughs) the diva or the calming best friend and knows that dynamic. So, um, 
you've already mentioned actually how then we get these highs and lows in estrogen and that can be unmet with progesterone, which means we can have these estrogen dominant like symptoms, which you mentioned. And I guess, um, uh, some of the things I see in my clients is um, a lot of mood changes, especially anxiety um, can be a big one, but also the highs and lows mean that the body is also experiencing like lots of different symptoms and then they feel okay. And then they don't feel okay. And then they feel okay. And then they don't feel okay. And it's kind of like, it's a bit chaotic, isn't it? And it's, it's, it can be really kind of the psychological impact of, feeling out of control and feeling this internal chaos can make it really, really challenging. And um, with fatigue specifically, like what I've often said is like your hormones are like your volume control in the body. So they're turning symptoms up or they're turning symptoms down. So when we have good levels of estrogen and that's met with the progesterone, as you've described, that's like a turning the volume down situation. But if estrogen yeah. is on a roller coaster ride and we haven't ovulated and it's unmet with progesterone, that's like turning the volume up. And so yeah. I think that's the challenge with perimenopause is we've constantly got this like volume dial just going like crazy up or, or back down to normal. Yeah. Um, and that can exacerbate whatever else is going on in the body. And so I was curious if you maybe could speak to that a little bit in terms of how do these hormonal um, fluctuations impact things like fatigue? And also you mentioned headaches and I think headaches is a very common symptom as well with Mm -hmm. people with fatigue conditions. So fatigue, headaches, um, maybe things like post-exertional malaise, brain fog, where do some of those symptoms fit into these fluctuations? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, it can be a sort of mixture of things. So the, for example, the estrogen highs, which is essentially, yeah. So estrogen highs or when estrogen is the dominating hormone or when it reaches, you know, as I said earlier, sometimes three times higher than it's ever been before that would bring about the symptoms like uh, breast pain, but let's say uh, heavy periods. If, if at that point, you know, your period is coming, um, but even a migraine, you can bring about a migraine or, or just a headache, a mood swing, some kind of, uh, you know, even like a anger, those kind of issues, real deep emotional issues. Um, and then that the sudden drop, the sudden, just like of the roller coaster of estrogen can bring about things like anxiety, a headache again, um, uh, low energy, obviously, and fatigue would would come into that um, brain fog because at that point, estrogen is really important for. Um, you talk about this a lot, but estrogen is really important for keeping up the cells in the body and the brain sensitive to insulin, which basically means that it's easier for glucose to get into the cells to be used as energy. So when we have these sudden drops in estrogen, suddenly it's really difficult in that moment to get glucose into the brain cells to be used for energy, and we can experience a headache or a migraine or brain fog or all of them um or the you know just like you said the fatigue um switch is just amplified at that point and even things like night sweats hot flashes so you get so many women that will say you know i'm only 42 and i'm having hot flashes how can this be menopause it's not menopause it's this slow and gradual transition to menopause yes but it's not menopause it's the lows of estrogen at that point that are just you know bringing these about and lots of studies also show um, things like the excess cortisol or not excess cortisol, but imbalanced cortisol. So essentially stress is like our own sort of um, 
barometer you know so so for example if we're having symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats for example with these estrogen lows it's it's really a sign that potentially there's there's more going on there you know stress wise um but then we also have progesterone which is really um brain protective so it's really helpful for protecting against um brain fog headaches it's really important for it's the anti-anxiety calming hormone really important for sleep so if we're not making progesterone coupled with this estrogen roller coaster then again it's things like brain fog um you know cognition issues just not being able to remember things and it, that also brings about some kind of stress because you hear a lot of women say is this early dementia you know I'm 43 I'm 44 what's going on I can't remember things like I used to so there's a bit there that's all happening it could all yeah. be happening at once I know when I was in the worst kind of stage of my chronic fatigue um I don't know whether or not I mean I'm I'm going to be 38 in a couple of weeks time so I kind of am in that perimenopausal range I don't know how perimenopausal I am but um there would sort of be three days before my period would start which I assume is when estrogen is like dropping down I would just have a day where I would just feel like everything fell off a cliff like my energy would just go very low I would just feel very like brain foggy and then then I that that might just be one day and then in the earlier part of my cycle so when estrogen again is low I would also find that that was when I would have the worst headaches the worst brain fog the worst muscle pain all of those sorts of things and that that is kind of natural for estrogen to be low in that time of the cycle and also it's something that has um as I've got more and more well the effects of my cycle on how I feel, you know, in and out of the month has got less and less. But I can imagine if somebody is perimenopausal and they're having these big swings from highs to low all the time, it must be very, very similar to that experience. Yeah, definitely. And that's exactly like my experience. So I definitely say that turning, so I'll be 43 in December, turning 40 to 41, there wasn't massive changes. The one thing I think I really noticed first was breast pain. So I used to have breast pain in my early 20s, so late teens, early 20s. But then from early 20s onwards, never, ever never I mean, it's like tenderness just before I was due on my period but not what I would consider pain and then so from around 40 I started to notice super super breast pain which I still experience now it's probably getting worse actually and that would make sense if me you know turning 43 and it's not to say it's okay and I shouldn't do anything about it because I, I should and I am um but I also noticed that the energy uh heavier periods was also another thing I noticed which again is something to take into account for energy because obviously if our periods are suddenly getting heavier and heavier and heavier we need to remember that you know, the depletion of potentially iron, for example. So we need to consider that all the time. Um, but what I noticed was I would always have like this week before my period or three days before my period, less energy. And I'd always maybe, let's say, be in the gym and notice that I wasn't as strong as I was two weeks ago. Um, but what I've really noticed in perimenopause and as I've gone 41 to 42, for example, is that it's just more so. It's just much more amplified. Those few days before my period, my energy is really low. My mood can be really low. I might experience anxiety for nothing, literally nothing, not sure. I just suddenly feel really uneasy and I don't know why, um, or just kind of not being able to deal with certain stressful situations that might not have bothered me two weeks ago, but now they're just really, really getting to me. And as you said, for me as well, day three of my period, if I'm going to have a, a headache, it's going to be then. 
And that was never the case in my 20s and 30s. Although I noticed I had lower energy when I was on my period on sort of day by day three, I never got headaches. That's new for me. That's just in now that I'm in my 40s. So it just, yeah, it kind of just amplifies if you are somebody with chronic fatigue and you're experiencing headaches as part of it, perimenopause can sort of just, you know, be, it's a layer. It's just another layer. And it's not to say that anyone's doomed. It's just understanding what's going on and what you can do to support at least that element of it. Yeah. And something else which comes to mind, which we won't go into a lot of detail on at all because it's just a complex area is the mast cell activation syndrome. So if somebody is um, producing a lot of histamine or not breaking down the histamine very well, then those fluctuations in estrogen are going to be amplifying the histamine production at certain times of the cycle, and that's going to exacerbate symptoms. Um, And so I think you were saying this actually before we started recording, I think that's why it's really helpful just to know that this is going on and to track your cycles and to have a sense of what might be happening when, because I know for me personally, even though I would feel really awful at the beginning of my cycle, I could just kind of soothe myself and say, I know this is just my hormones and this is going to pass in a week's time or whatever. And because I know, especially people with chronic illness, they kind of get pulled into what I call the the trauma vortex of their symptoms. They start to get anxious about their symptoms. They start to obsess about their symptoms. And then they kind of like spiral deeper and deeper into this very dysregulated nervous system state. So I think Sometimes knowledge is power just to understand what's going on and that you can track it and what to expect. So uh, did you want to talk a little bit more about that or have I basically summed it all up? No, I think think there's lots to say there. And I've got a nice example of myself last month. Um, I probably sent you a voice note about it already. Um, So our normal menstrual cycling years, we have ebbing and flowing uh, estrogen. And then, like I said, it's after we ovulate, which hopefully we, we do manage to do. We are then um, that estrogen is met in the second half of the cycle with lovely progesterone. So we're we're having we're still having this, you know, tracking your cycle in perimenopause is still just as and really, really important because we're still going to have those normal ebbs and flows of estrogen. So, for example, the first few days of your cycle up until maybe day four, day five, estrogen and progesterone are pretty low. And then estrogen starts climbing from, let's say, day four, day five ish. It keeps climbing, it keeps climbing, and then it ramps really high just before ovulation because the brain is saying to the ovaries, it's basically trying to get the ovaries to ovulate. And in order for that to happen, there needs to be enough progesterone. So we get this nice rise in estrogen. Sorry, estrogen. I think I said progesterone. We get a nice rise in estrogen just before the the body ovulates. Once we then achieve ovulation, which we won't always do, but once we do, we make lovely progesterone and that meets the estrogen. And then just before our next period, they both go down again. So quite normal for anybody, even in their 20s and 30s, to have lower energy a few days before their period and the first few days of the period. So about six to seven to eight days, give or take. And that's still happening during perimenopause. It's just a little bit more amplified. So, for example, the ramp up of estrogen just before ovulation might be super high compared to earlier 30s or 20s. And if you haven't, if you don't ovulate, then there's no progesterone coming in. And then estrogen is this dominant diva all the way throughout the cycle. You still get the lows just before you're due on and while you're on your period. But it can just mean that 
symptoms of potentially like you know dominating estrogen can just be more amplified there and if we haven't made progesterone there'll be symptoms for example the example i give um i'll give last month i had a particularly busy work month which i found mentally quite stressful there was so much I was going to say it was perimenopausal weirdness month. Yeah, that's why French is exactly <laughs> the irony. So it, it was. I was so busy because of that awareness month. I literally needed two of me to do the work that I'd taken on, and I did get quite. I, I tried my best, you know, not to get stressed about it. I had I have all my little practices in place that really helped me, but I did get overwhelmed. I did get really overwhelmed, and I noticed in the second half of my cycle in that month. I was really anxious. I had this weird anxiety that I have never actually experienced before. I said to my partner, Mark, I said, I've I've never, ever felt this way before. It's a weird fear that I've got in this moment. I can't describe it. My sleep was terrible for the last sort of 10 days of my cycle. And I just, I decided, you know, and and I had terrible, terrible breast pain, probably the, the worst breast pain I've had since turning 40. And I thought to myself, I probably, because I wasn't tracking it, I probably didn't ovulate. I probably didn't manage to ovulate last month, which would make sense because one of the biggest blockers to achieving ovulation is stress. If the brain picks up on any kind of stress or threat, which in my case was that I was just stressed over all the work I had to do, the brain... Teaching yeah. people about, you know, exactly. about not being stressed to help their hormones. <laughs> but my brain doesn't know that. My brain just thinks there's some really, there must be some really threatful situation here. So it prevents me from ovulating. It doesn't tell my ovaries to ovulate because it's dangerous. What if I fall pregnant and bring a child into a dangerous situation, which is no good. I can't, I wish I could just say to my brain, look, I'm not trying to get pregnant. I just need to have, I need to have my progesterone, but you can't say that. So I think I didn't get, I didn't ovulate, therefore I didn't make progesterone. And therefore all of those symptoms were just rife. The sleep, the anxiety and the breast pain all make sense. Um, you know, I'm hoping this month will be completely different and my brain will tell my ovaries to make progesterone. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's all of those things. So, so tracking your cycle, even if you're in that chaotic state of perimenopause phase is still really important because you can just honor where you are. So me, because I tracked my cycle, I knew, okay, this breast pain is, I checked what day it was, you know, it was day 19, 20, for example, I should have had lots of lovely progesterone at that stage, but I mustn't have. Otherwise I don't believe I would have had the terrible breast pain and the anxiety and sleep issues I had. And it allowed me, it took the pressure off because I just said to myself, okay, I probably haven't ovulated this month. It's no wonder. I've been really stressed. I've taken on too much work. Um, You know, this is a one-off. It won't happen again, probably until next October when it's next menopause awareness month. Um, So it's fine. Everything can go back to normal. And that really helped me to just make peace with those symptoms and not lose sleep over them and be extra stressed. What's going on? What's wrong? Oh no, my chronic fatigue is getting worse. So tracking your cycle and just saying, right, okay, I feel really low today. Um, I feel a bit anxious. I feel really low energy. I went for my walk, but it didn't feel as good. I don't think I can go to the gym. What's wrong with me? You check your app. If you're using an app to track your cycle, it's day 26, let's say, and you're due on in a couple of days. Okay, well, that's probably why you feel the way you do. So you just need to honor that and honor yourself and do something different that day. 
you know, so it's really powerful because it takes a lot of stress off. And I know people will want to know this. What's the best way to track your cycle? Because I have my opinions on this, but what do you recommend to your clients? I mean, it's up to, I have a client who uses pen and paper. She just loves using a diary and she just opens her diary every day and sees where she is. So it's whatever works for you. I personally use an app. I use a free app. I've never used all the apps that are out there. There's lots of different ones. I use one called Cycles. Um, there's a paid version and a free version. I've never used a paid version because all I want to do is plug in, literally hit the button on the day that I've come on my period. And then I just use the app every day to see all, you know, every few days to see where I am. Some people want to go a bit further and really track um symptoms and things like that and you might need the paid version for that some of the free versions still let you do it and I do think that's really powerful too I think I'm just a bit lazy I don't bother plugging all of that in but it is really powerful to be tracking symptoms as well but you will like I just know for me I know the various symptoms on the various days you know various points of my cycle but Essentially, you want to know the day that you've come on your period. So that's day one of that cycle. You want to know roughly when you might be due to ovulate. You want to know, you know, roughly when you're in that second half of the cycle, pick up on any symptoms that potentially could be low progesterone, like the anxiety, sleep issues. So if if your sleep is suddenly different in the second half of your cycle every month, that could be a sign that maybe there's ovulation issues and is it stress? Or are there other things to look at? Yeah, I use, um, I've got an aura ring, which I really like um, for cycle tracking. I think I've got the old one. I think they've got a new, I think it's generation three or something now, which is a bit more sophisticated in terms of the cycle tracking technology. So I don't have that one, so I can't speak to it. But the one that I have, it measures your body temperature at night. And I can always tell when I've ovulated because um, there's a, there's a change in my body temperature. It it doesn't tell you what your body temperature is. It either gives you a negative figure or a plus figure. So pre-ovulation, I'm like negative 0.1 degrees, anything between 0.1 and 0.5 degrees. And then after ovulation, I'm like a plus anything from 0.1 to 0.5 degrees, depending on the night. And you can always see like on the graph, there's this like lovely curve of like, um, low body temperature and then high body temperature for about 14 days each side. So I really like that um, to confirm ovulation. Um, if confirming ovulation is important to you, I think sometimes I'll ask clients like how they track their cycles and they use the app so they know that they're having regular cycles, but they don't actually know if they're ovulating or not. Yeah, it's difficult to know that. And I, I use a thermometer, just a good old thermometer where you would just you just take your temperature your baseline temperature every single morning as soon as you wake up I I was writing I haven't done it for a while I did it for about six months and you just write down your temperature in a little book I just make a little table and then you can sort of see you know has it is it consistently risen in the second half of the cycle after the rough day that you were supposed to ovulate and that yeah that can kind of you know, it's never going to be a hundred percent accurate to confirm. I think using ovulation strips as well as that would probably be way more accurate, but it is really helpful just to see, yes, my temperature has gone up. So the likelihood is I have ovulated because body temperature will naturally rise. Um, so that can be really helpful. I think I've had different conversations with, with clients and some, you know, for some tracking ovulation is, um, 
Yeah, it's either a sensitive subject because potentially they were tracking, they were doing that in the past, for example, trying to get pregnant. And now they're not in that phase anymore and they don't really want to be going back there in their head. And then, yeah, or it can just be a stress. It's like, oh, another thing to do every morning and write it down. So I've now sort of gone back to going with symptoms, I think, because I've just just started to, you know, understand my body so well and the symptoms that are you know, completely new versus what's potentially could be normal just due to maybe a busier month. But last month, there was just no doubt about it that the the new anxiety, the level of breast pain and the sleep issues was unreal. So I would safely say there was no ovulation that month. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Um, So the other question I had was somebody has fatigue. They also are in that age range, like 35 plus, and they're suspected they're perimenopausal and they're suspecting that these highs and lows on hormones are impacting, it's kind of turning the volume up and down on their symptoms across the month. What can they do to support their body? You've mentioned stress though, and stress and sleep already a lot. So I'm assuming you're going to say that, but um, do you want to talk a little bit more about those or are there other things you also want to add in? Yeah, I think it's really understanding. There's quite a lot. I mean, it's understanding what's going on. So firstly, we've already discussed that. So estrogen's on a roller coaster. Um, I also mentioned the fact that when estrogen drops, we can have issues with getting energy into the brain effectively. So that can create those extra like brain fatigue issues. Um testosterone we have you know it's not part of the the change in hormones but we do gradually decline our levels in testosterone naturally decline as we get older anyway so that's always something to look at as well and it can be um like an easy win because if we have really low levels of testosterone as a woman for for the female optimal amounts that can impact fatigue mood kind of uh zest for life all of those things and strength so if it's on the floor for example and you haven't considered that then it's something you know you can check easily in serum go to your gp or you could use some some someone like medichex that just do a home finger prick one um and if that's on the floor that's something that you can look into about how you can help to increase those levels essentially eating plenty of protein and it's annoying but sleep and strength training and really helpful for that obviously if you're not in a position to do those things but you know it's just it's just being aware so if it's at a robust level then you're like okay fine that's not one of my issues but then just really understanding the impact of low progesterone and you know the fluctuations in estrogen so then how can you support how you can support your body for example with helping it to ovulate every month the natural thing of perimenopause is that we will ovulate less and less it's harder to achieve ovulation in your 40s and then that will just become harder the closer we get to achieving menopause but we can still support the body to ovulate as many months as possible even if it's not every month and if we can if we can do it if we can achieve it as many months as possible we're building up you know more exposure to progesterone or as many months as possible so that would be really looking at stress um i mean i know most chronic fatigue uh, patients will be looking there anyway but it's just you know being aware that it is something that would block ovulation but then what's also really important is i mentioned earlier that estrogen is in balanced healthy levels is important for keeping the body and brain cells sensitive to insulin so understanding that the estrogen roller coaster can have an impact on insulin sensitivity which the opposite of that is insulin resistance which is where we're not 
efficiently getting glucose into the cells of the body and the brain. And that, you know, exacerbates any and all symptoms essentially of, of chronic fatigue. So being aware that maybe we need to start looking at our relationship with carbohydrates and knowing that the way that we were consuming carbs in our 20s and earlier 30s might not work anymore. And just kind of modulating that. Yeah, I would speak to that as well as that like pre my CFS experience was that I would do like loads of weight training and I would just like smash the carbohydrates. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, now coming back into weight training after having this chronic fatigue experience, but also being older, like 10 years mm. older, five years older, however much older than before, um, like my carbohydrate tolerance is so small now compared to what it used to be. And, um, you know, like I have to be really careful with my carbohydrate consumption, even though I'm like weight training and walking loads. And I, I would say I'm probably more active now in my chronic fatigue recovery than some healthy quote, quote, people are, but I still have to be really careful about my carbohydrate intake. And I've done all the ketogenic you know, metabolic mm. flexibility, resetting stuff, and I still have to be careful. Yeah, because that that change in estrogen, that estrogenic picture, and the decline in progesterone, it creates a huge metabolic shift in the body. It's like a whole metabolic upheaval that those the changes in those two hormones because they're they're metabolic hormones. Estrogen is a metabolic hormone. So when it's changing and fluctuating like that, and when we're not making enough progesterone anymore, it just changes our metabolism, basically our entire metabolic system is is, is upheaved, upheaved. So energy to the brain, energy to the body, you know, will be affected by our carbohydrate intake. So if we were somebody who we could eat all the sandwiches and the bagels and the wraps, the white wraps and, you know, all the white rice and all the big jacket potatoes, Cake and all the cake, <laughs> chocolate brownies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in your twenties and thirties, it was probably fine. In your earlier thirties, but now it just won't be because the cells are naturally going to be more prone to being resistant to insulin now. Uh, you know, post uh, in perimenopause, so we have to support that. So even. I know you talk about this a lot and you do it with clients and yourself tracking, um, you know, checking your blood sugar, even if you just do it for a week here and there, kind of spot check every so often with a blood prick, a finger prick monitor, just to see how certain um, types of carbs and portions of carbs affect your blood sugar. And really, once you see that, it yeah. it will really help you to be motivated not to eat those particular carbs in that particular amount. I think everybody, healthy or not, should be doing that on a regular basis just to spot check themselves because um, I think there's so many people who, yeah. who have dysregulated blood sugar and don't even realize that they think, you know, if they're normal weight, if they don't have any chronic health conditions yet, I still think there's a lot of people walking around with dysregulated blood sugar and it comes back to bite you as you come into perimenopause or if something else goes wrong. Yeah. And it's just understanding the impact of on brain energy, you know, mm. and how that feeds into fatigue. And if that's your perimenopausal hormone situation, it's so, so important to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And would you be able to talk a little bit about the liver? Um, because we know the liver is really important for clearing estrogen from the body. So if we've got like these big estrogen surges happening, the body's also got to get rid of that. Yeah. And I see, at least with a lot of people with chronic fatigue, 
liver function is quite often compromised, um, whether maybe because there's been some sort of toxic exposure that's contributing to the, the picture of fatigue or something else. I think a lot of people just generally have sluggish livers and gallbladders because we live in such a toxic world these days. But did you want to touch on that at all? Yeah, I think I'll, it's probably going to be unpopular to say, but one of the, the two, well, one of the biggest things that I see and kind of notice in perimenopause for myself and with clients is a game changer is unfortunately alcohol so the way that the liver obviously processes alcohol any alcohol that comes into the body has to go through the liver and the liver prioritizes that above over and above anything else and we have to remember that estrogen is constantly being detoxified being broken down um you know metabolized in the liver by the liver all day every day and it has in order to keep healthy estrogen levels in the body we have to that process has to be happening really well all day, every day. Then, you know, I'm sure you've talked about this before. But once the liver's done its job, it gets sent to the gut. It sits in the gut waiting to be passed out permanently via a bowel movement. So we also need to be considering if there's any constipation. We have to be going to the toilet at least once a day, passing a fully formed, healthy bowel movement at least once. Um, but in terms of the liver, so if there's any alcohol, again, this goes back to the carb thing as well. In your 20s and earlier 30s, you were probably able you, you might say, well, I've been drinking alcohol all the time and it's my, you know, my periods have always been fine. My cycles have been fine. Again, it's understanding that this perimenopausal phase is a whole new ball game, and what worked before probably won't work anymore. Even the levels of stress that you had before, the type of exercise that you did, the amount of exercise that you did, all of that changes once we're now in this new phase of life. And we have to adapt our lifestyle for that. Staying up late, watching films until midnight in your 20s compared to doing that in your 40s again completely different impacts on your sleep and alcohol is probably one of the biggest ones that I see um, with myself with clients I don't drink alcohol anymore um, if I want to I might have something but it isn't something I particularly I know that it's not worth it basically because of the impact on your hormones. So some studies have shown that you can have that any kind of alcohol coming into your system can raise estrogen levels six times, um, you know, just by having that level. level. Wow. I wasn't aware of that figure. I mean, I don't even, I don't drink either. Very occasionally I might have a drink if I go out or something like that, but it's very yeah. sporadic, but six times. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. So you, if you're somebody who suffers with, for example, heavy periods, breast pain, painful periods, um, all of that stuff, you know, that's really important. We, we want to make sure that estrogen is being cleared, being broken down and cleared out of the body efficiently. And alcohol will just be adding to the load, basically, isn't it? You know, if we're if we've seen that it can increase estrogen. And, and I it think takes priority as well, doesn't it? So yeah, while the body is busy processing the alcohol, it's not doing all the other jobs that it needs to do. Yeah. Exactly. And one of those being breaking down estrogen and therefore we have excess estrogen left to just hang around in the body when it should have gone. Um, and the other thing that's really big in perimenopause is hormone disrupting chemicals, which can feel a bit daunting initially. But once you understand where they're coming in from and you understand that you don't need to make changes overnight, um, it can be a really powerful tool. So um, hormone disrupting chemicals are basically chemicals that have been found in various areas in our environment to look like the real estrogen so once they get into the body once these chemicals can get into our system the uh, cell receptors in the body that take in estrogen 
look at these chemicals and say, oh, that's that's the real estrogen. So they let it into the cell. But unfortunately, this not real estrogen, these hormone, these chemicals that look like estrogen, once they get into the cell, they can just cause havoc on the whole hormone system, the communication, the action of your hormones. But they also raise the body's level of total estrogen because they look like estrogen. So again, that would impact heavy periods, painful periods, breast pain, headaches, all of those estrogen excess symptoms. Um, So that's a really important place to start as well. And you can just, it's basically, um, for example, tap water has been shown to have um, these chemicals in it but just simply filtering your tap water can be really helpful just a Brita filter jug nothing fancy can just be you know it might not be 100% but it's really it's going to be helpful and every little helps but the main sources as well is things like plastic so if you're heating cooking storing foods in plastics potentially you know if you just switch over to glass stainless steel for example or ceramic that can help you know big time over time Um, and then commercial skincare, makeup. So anything like body cream that you put on every day, face cream, deodorant, shower gel, all of these things, anything perfumed as well. These have all been shown to contain various chemicals that are known as these hormone disrupting chemicals. But again, you don't have to rush out and throw all your stuff out and rush out and buy everything, you know, rebuy natural products. It's just doing things one by one. So when your body cream runs out next, could you source a hundred percent natural version of a body cream so there's various um lovely natural brands out there um off the top of my head i mean even places like neil's yard they that's sort of skincare they can be quite expensive but companies like um sukin jason green people there's ren yeah ren tropic is quite new but they are 100 all natural so just gradually switching to natural products you know even if it takes years it's still really helpful one day you'll get to that point where everything you use is natural and that's great but it doesn't have to be overnight yeah i really like on instagram um the environmental toxin nerd i think is her handle yeah. she's got she she basically does training for people like my francesca and myself to teach them will teach us how to teach people about toxins but she's got a really great account um so she's a good person to follow if you want to learn more about where we're exposed to toxins in the environment and there's an app that i use called think dirty and you just scan the barcode of your product and it tells you it gives you like a score and like that's amazing yeah (laughs) really great so and when you're looking at natural things, because sometimes you think a product is natural because it will say, oh, it's 100% organic or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't have any chemicals. So then you can just scan it and see, or just type it in. You don't have to scan it. You can just type in the product. So that's really helpful. Amazing. So um, we, I think we could talk about this all day, but is there anything else yeah. sort of like top recommendations you would make for someone who's looking to manage their perimenopause fluctuations alongside their fatigue recovery journey? Um, I think just... It's really understanding what's happening with that, you know, remembering that that roller coaster of estrogen can be exacerbating things like brain fatigue, headaches, migraines, all of those things. Tracking your cycle is probably the first thing, you know, we've talked about that already, but definitely tracking your cycle, understanding where you are at any given time, if if possible, if you have regular cycles and supporting just really trying to, you know, get to know your body, get to know the different times in the month where you might feel your worst 
and then honoring that that day you know or even planning it in your diary my calendar every month I know when I'm roughly going to be due on the next month and the next month and the app helps me to do that and honoring that if I'm going to book a weekend away or a day out with somebody or anything like that it won't be around those times and just giving yourself you know a break and reminding yourself this will pass this will pass this is likely hormonal because that takes that stress off um but yeah I think just really supporting um obviously the, the liver supporting the liver to clear out estrogen is a whole other podcast in itself but um yeah <laughs> yeah maybe we'll have you back to do that <laughs> I think those are, I think just understanding, you know, check testosterone, make sure that's not one of the issues, rule that out, um, and support ovulation as best as you can, which is essentially stress management, insulin resistance. So really looking at carbohydrates and blood sugar balance, lots of protein in the diet, lots of good fats, and uh yeah, minimizing the refined carbohydrate consumption and even looking at good carbs, you know, making sure the portion size is okay for you. Yeah. And um, this could potentially be another rabbit hole, but what about testing or is there any value in testing? Because these hormones are fluctuating all the time. And if we test, we're only kind of getting a snapshot of what's going on at any specific time. So is there any value in testing? Um, I know I had a client who went to a perimenopause clinic. They recommended hormone replacement therapy. They didn't do any testing. They just went purely off of symptoms. So I'm curious about your perspective on what tests could be valuable i know you mentioned the testosterone blood spot but anything else yeah if you're testing so the testosterone blood spot that's great if you're testing estrogen and progesterone it's yeah because of the estrogen roller coaster it's very difficult to just be testing your estrogen and saying oh it's really low or oh it's really high because it might have just been tested at the high point or the low point of the roller coaster so you'd almost need to test like every day or I don't know, twice a day to really get that picture, which isn't, you know, feasible. Progesterone is slightly different because if you test progesterone, for example, between roughly days 19 and 22 of your cycle, which is when if you have a kind of regular cycle, let's say average 28-ish day cycle, that's those that window of time is when progesterone, if you made it, if you ovulated, would be at a good level. So if you were to test progesterone regularly, let's say, and it was always low, if was low one month you could say okay well I probably didn't ovulate that month maybe you'll test it again the next month or a couple of months later and if it's always low then there's probably an ovulation issue there is it stress you know then you can start thinking about what might be blocking that um so that can be helpful but the dutch test is probably my favorite because so this is the dried urine um test for complete hormones so it's basically looking at estrogen and progesterone testosterone but it's also looking at your uh, adrenal hormones, so cortisol. Um, but yes, it gives you a, a reading of estrogen or progesterone on that particular day that you took the test. But aside from that, because let's say estrogen was really low, I would think, well, maybe that was part of the roller coaster. So we don't actually know if it's always low. And for example, do you need to speak to a doctor about hormone replacement therapy? But the Dutch test also shows us how your liver is metabolizing, like basically handling your estrogen. So your used estrogen has to go to the liver. This test shows us how your liver is processing that and whether it's processing it in a really efficient, healthy way or not. And if it isn't processing it in a really efficient, healthy way, that can be increasing breast pain, heavy periods, painful periods, for example. So I do love the Dutch 
Dutch test. Yeah, I would say my opinion is very similar to yours is that I do like the Dutch test because you get that estrogen metabolism piece. And I think that's just kind of helpful to see how well people are detoxifying. Obviously, not everything that the body needs to detoxify, but it's a useful little snapshot. Um, And then obviously you can see if someone's ovulated or not with that test as well. And uh, I guess this is another rabbit hole, but just like very, very briefly, do you feel that hormone replacement therapy could be useful? Yeah, so that is another rabbit hole. And it's nuanced from every woman to woman. It really is personal. But I I am for hormone replacement therapy. I will definitely be knocking on its door when the time comes. Um, yeah, I think especially post-menopause, like when, once we lose estrogen once we lose the the ability to make estrogen at menopause and postmenopause I do believe it is health uh, you know health protective to put it back in to replace it but only in the body identical form which is really the the main you know the old school sort of synthetic oral estrogens I don't believe they're being used that much anymore anyway but body identical estrogen and progesterone taken as a capsule so the body identical estrogen would be patched or gel and the progesterone as a capsule, I definitely think there's a place for them post-menopause. And for some women, perimenopausal, not necessarily menopausal, but for some women, you know, that their cycles, let's say by 45, 46, for whatever reason, might be completely just AWOL. And they're having a cycle like every three months or every six months. And that woman is likely to be you know, estrogen deficient because she's clearly not making enough estrogen, otherwise she'd be cycling every month. So there could be a conversation there with, at that point, with your GP about body identical HRT. But that's, you know, that is definitely person to person. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I mean, there's nuance to everything and everything is personalized, which is why you and I have jobs. Um, but also just to say as well, sometimes I also think that people think they can just take the hormone yeah. replacement therapy and then it helps a little bit, but then there's actually all this other stuff going on that, that we've talked about, the sleep, the stress, the liver, the blood sugar, the gut health. And actually when we make the person wholly healthy, when we support the whole body and all those body systems, in that hormone replacement therapy is like the cherry on top. Yeah, there's definitely, I've heard a lot of women talk about, I just need to replace my hormones. Yes, maybe you do. And like I said, I'll be knocking on that door when the time comes. But all of the stuff that we've talked about and the stuff that we do talk about in our work, lifestyle, nutrition related, whether you're using HRT or not, all of that stuff is really important. It all has to be there, all of it, not just... I'll just do, I'll use my nutrition and lifestyle to manage my symptoms or I'll use HRT. It's got to be nutrition and lifestyle as your kind of baseline, like get healthy, be healthy, do all the right things. And then, yeah, HRT, if that's where you go, is going to be extra beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. We have been talking a long time and I'm very conscious of taking up all your time. Is there anything else that you want to share on this topic? No, I mean, like you said, I could share loads. We could talk, we could keep talking for hours. So I won't, I'll have to stop there, I think. <laughs> this, this is what happens when Francesca comes to visit me is we just literally, I literally pick her up from the station and then we just talk like nonstop until I drop her off at the station and we're both exhausted <laughs> from all the talking. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're very passionate about this. And uh, obviously we talk about other things besides work, but at, say at least 50 to 75% is probably probably work (laughs) we need to talk to each other about this stuff (laughs) yeah I think when you have your own business and you're like on your own most of the time and then you meet someone who just completely gets you and it's like 
<laughs> can just keep on talking for ages. Um, so Francesca, where can people find you? Um, obviously you, um, you know, you specialize in perimenopause, but you also have a lot of understanding of what it feels like to have chronic fatigue and burnout and um if somebody really feels called to work with you after listening to this conversation or maybe they just feel like they want to find out a little bit more or use some of your resources um how can people find you and um is there anything you want to share yeah, so my website is my full name, francescaliparotti.com, which hopefully we'll put it in the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, my I'm on Instagram, that's probably the where I'm most active is yeah, so that's Francesca Liparotti, all one word, underscore NT, which stands for nutritional therapist. Um, and then yeah, I think the best thing to do would yeah, be go to Instagram and then if you wanted to, for example, sign up to my email list, I send an email every week or so, um, which is hopefully quite useful information, all perimenopause based. So just you can um, sign up to that from my website or from my Instagram bio. I have a free guide that's available from my Instagram bio as well um, on perimenopause, a webinar recording that can be bought. And then I'll be running a group program in the new year date to be confirmed but all of that information will obviously be on instagram okay amazing well thank you so much francesca for sharing everything today it's been so lovely to have you on the podcast and um we'll see uh, see everybody in the next episode thanks for having me bye <laughs>